So what happens when you combine my insane curiosity with some of the world's most interesting people? You end up with incredible conversations full of stories, insights, and the defining moment that made them who they are today. This is The David Spizak Show. Welcome to The David Spizak Show. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Uh, and I hope everybody is having a wonderful holiday season. Uh, I have truly a gift for you, but also a gift for myself in all honesty. You know, you love to give gifts to people, but every once in a while, be honest, it's not a bad thing to give yourself a gift. And I'm giving myself one today because I get to hang out with my friend and somebody I respect immensely, JT Taylor, the managing director for automotive at Truist Securities. JT, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. David, it's always a, a privilege, first of all, to hang out with you, but then also to get your feedback and, and interaction on all things auto. You are a connected dude. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So I've got a lot of things I want to touch on that I mentioned giving my, a gift for myself, but I am more interested. It's always more fun to give gifts to other people. JT, I have an intention today of giving big value, and I know uh, that you're going to do that in a big, big way. And the way that I, I'm going to do that, my intention is to ask you for your feedback and insights, if I may, on different segments within the retail automotive space. Is, is that okay? That's great. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be able to bring some uh, some uh, facts and details and uh, maybe you and I can also join in and maybe speculate a little bit on how 24 is <laughs> We oh Boy, I'll tell you what, that would be a very cool way to end as 2024 is literally just around the corner. All right, so let's jump right in. So when we think about retail automotive, you know, you gotta start with the consumers, right? I mean, you and I, we, we spend all of our time in the retail auto space. We, we love dealers, we love the people in dealerships and we serve them in a number of fashions. But frankly, of course, as you know, uh, if you don't have consumers, you don't have a heck of a lot to talk about. So let's talk about consumers because Truist Securities um, is not only in the space of the commercial side or the dealer side, but frankly, on the consumer side. So what might you share with people, whether they're in the dealership operation space, whether they're the owner, a manager, an associate, uh, somebody in the periphery um, supporting them, or even somebody that just has a fascination with our our business, all things automotive, um, what would you say? What's What's the feeling? What's the vibe? And and what are some things that might be interesting for folks to know about what you're seeing on the consumer side? Well, David, that's a great segue because our practice at Truist Securities is, of course, part of the greater Truist Bank. The Truist Bank is a regularly a top 10 provider of indirect lending through the 4,000 plus dealerships that use our uh, indirect lending as a resource in their F&I offices. And that's consumer lending, as you know. Uh, Rate increases, obviously, have been a harbinger of some reductions in used volume, a certain, uh, particularly certain price categories. But Truist Bank has a full credit spectrum offering. We start with regional acceptance, which is our subprime, near prime offering, all the way up to our Truist Prime and Truist Super Prime, uh, which uh, serve you know the the, the greater uh, portion of the auto lending universe. The activity 
is still pretty remarkable. It's high. You know, in our, our look to book, so to speak, has not dropped off. So we're finding good consumers that still want to buy cars being served up by our dealers in an appropriate way. Down payments have gone up about 15%. Mm. Yeah. Since interest rates went up, down payments went up. So the you know equity position that people are taking is stronger. That bodes well for the future, as you know. It's lower negative equity in the future. Um, the advances that Truist and some of our com- most of our competitors are providing today on the vehicle, you know, in its heyday back when vehicles were short and consumers had lots of lots of, uh, of uh, passive income that they're able to show, uh, particularly 21, 22, it wasn't it wasn't unheard of just for the right customer to see a hundred twenty five percent advance on the value of the vehicle, which was unheard of a decade ago. Which absolutely. I mean, we would have never guessed a deal like that in a million years, <laughs> particularly in the luxury segment where you cut your chops. That wasn't that was a part of it. Um, we are seeing the recovery. We are not in the leasing business, but we monitor very closely. Uh, retail leasing is coming up as a percentage of overall retail. I think that's healthy. Uh, we need to replenish the used car factory and off lease vehicles are a great way to do that. We'll see what happens with uh, with residual values, but most lenders are still maintaining a fair and captives are, are maintaining a fairly conservative view of that. We believe that there'll be some incentivizing on the residual value side of things from the manufacturers, marketing funds going into the captives to, to secure that, uh, which bodes well for retail. Uh, maybe moving some of the more expensive inventory that we've all been uh, seeing arrive on dealer lots over the last couple of years, particularly as some some brands that have moved substantially up market with their with their product. Um, used car business, it is um, region by market by market would be a better way to put it, David. It's just unusual how we are seeing values vary uh, sometimes substantially on the same. Um, mileage category, make, model, color of, of particularly of the volume vehicles, pickup trucks in 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 particular. Um, if new car if new pickups have are short supply in a particular market, of course the used trucks are going to be in a higher value. There are big markets that the manufacturers are supplying a lot of trucks, pickup trucks to. They're building well. They're building what sells those and used. Truck values have dropped significantly in those marketplaces. Mannheim, uh, Open Lane, uh, America's Auto Auction, all report those numbers. We see those because we bank all those companies. And it is amazing how we are watching a variation in used car values. That somewhat whipsaws the used car customer. Uh, but in the world that we live in, and one that you've been at the point of the spear for many years, a digital world is allowing consumers to be a little bit more selective and find that car that may not necessarily be in their backyard, but it's on someone else's lot or in someone else's offering and they're able to secure it. That um, from a consumer standpoint, we think that there's legitimately a a stronger demand today than ever before, even during COVID, to have the opportunity to walk down that path of financing, pre-selecting where your 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 boundaries for your budget, your down payment, um, and then allowing yourself to be served up to the best banks with the best rates and the best terms. Dealers are uh, embracing that; they're doing a good job of serving some of that information up. Um, 
quietly. We see some dealer groups getting good at that process. And Truist and the major banks uh, that are in that top 10 provider category are definitely standing behind those uh, initiatives that retailers are creating, particularly the public companies, uh, to get as much of that information secured for the consumer. They get, it's a safe place for them to do that. So, JT, there's a lot, there's, going on there. yeah, there's a lot going on, and you came right out of the shoot with some really powerful and insightful information. I thank you for that. So, I want to unpack a couple of those things. I'm super curious with all of the data that you have, and you know the fact that you have the benefit of of being Truist Securities as well as Truist Bank, and you've got the consumer side, the commercial side, the dealer side. Um, so, one thing is. You know, if you look back to 2019 when the average new car was 38 grand, uh, the average manufacturer incentive uh, that year was 10.4%. So pull 10.4 off the 38.8. That's going to pull that number down to closer to 34 and change. And and then you had a low interest rate under 4%. Of course, you also had lower insurance, lower gas prices and everything else. And the average household income was just under 70 grand. That household income has gone up to 74 and change. It's up about seven, eight percent. But as you know, the inflation went up a little over 20 percent. Um, some manufacturers, Stellantis notably, has raised their prices in the last five years 50 percent, um, while others like Toyota uh, and Subaru uh, only about 20 percent. So. You know, what that's caused in my brain when I look at things is kind of this bifurcation to where if you looked at in 2019, if you had an average household income, 70 grand, pretty much 100% of those the average household income could afford to buy or lease a new car. Today, average price 49 grand, only 4.4% contribution of OEM incentives, although that just shifted in December. We'll see where it goes. My prediction like yours is in 2024, we're going to see a lot more aggressive and compelling consumer incentives, as well as a return to more incentives for dealers. But for right now, you're talking about 49 grand minus about 25. So, you know, you're talking, you're talking about call it 37,000 or 47,000 versus 34 and change. You're talking about a 9% interest rate, maybe eight compared to a three, eight, five. Um, completely different animals. So the average cost of a payment for a consumer today, you know, has gone up by four to 500 bucks a month. 20% of payments roughly are over a thousand dollars a month. The average new car payments about 750 a month. That's including fiats and then civics and everything else on the low end. Um, so here's my question. You mentioned activity is pretty brisk, uh, overall, my question is, when you break it down by tier, that subprime versus prime, super prime, would you say that the that that activity level is the same for all three? I'm curious, or do you tend to see it uh, more on the brisk side for the prime and the super prime than the subprime? As a share of book deals that we're seeing, and this is this is this is uh, national data, share of book deals, it has not changed substantially as a percentage of those deals. Category that has changed, the ones that aren't financing. Cash yes, deals have yes. record cash deals this year. Significantly. So 
it hasn't necessarily affected the per unit um, F&I uh, gross profit generated in a dealership dramatically, but it's flattened. You know, it, it, when prices went up and the banks were still paying you reserve on the amount that you financed, that obviously would drive a bigger number there. Average um, loan well, value was much higher at that time. Exactly. So that goes up and you're going to have, you're going to have better reserve. If cash deals are now, you know, 11, 12, 15% as some months. some north 25%. And that's crazy, but it's just the reality of, of value, right? And, um, um, yeah, the new car for cash isn't necessarily great economic strategy, but if you are debt averse and you don't like, and you're, there's no beneficial action for your, to, you know, take your money invested versus what it would cost you to borrow it, which there was an inverse there. I could make 7% on my portfolio and I'll borrow at three and a half. That's a, that's a good arbitrage. Now I'm still making seven, eight percent maybe 90% and I'm paying in some cases, good credit. We're, we're talking 700 beacon scores are paying 10%. That's right. So it's, 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 it's a little different world with that. Well, do you think it's, do you, David, do you think it's going to affect uh, how we start the year off on, on volume? What we just described, you know, I th- I think like everything else today that things have, are getting more complex by the minute. And I think that it's, and one of the questions I was going to ask you is, you know, how, how do you value, do you think data is becoming more and more important? It's my, in my estimation, it's never been more important. And I'll just give you an example. So when you look at these cash deals and you uh, really dig down and unpeel those layers, uh, again, this changes by brand depends on whether it's a, a Chevy store, whether it's a Mercedes store or anything in between. But I find that at most stores, the majority of these cash deals are not cash. They are what's happening as I'm finding a big rise in credit union um, deals, originations. I'm finding that credit unions have kind of figured out the power of F and I themselves. I'm finding that they are, they have credit unions now they didn't used to, but used to go to the credit union and just get a loan, right? And and then one day they thought, huh, we're going to start selling service contracts. Now credit unions have a full array of products just like dealers do, maintenance, service contracts, and other protection packages. And so I'm seeing credit unions <clears throat> who appear to be clearly subventing their own rates as a, as a means of uh, securing more uh, deals uh, and... And then mitigating that that rate subvention and then some by adding these products. Now, the funny thing is the F&I products that they're offering, uh, funny how the world works. Um, you know, it used to be 20, 30 years ago. Hey, come to the credit union. We're going to take good care of you. Don't go to the dealer. Now it's the opposite. No, no, no. You should be going to the dealer, not the credit union. Why? Well, why they might be uh, teasing you up with a 1% better rate the F&I products they're selling, I've found in almost every case, are suboptimal or substandard compared to what you could get a dealer. They're not offering OEM-backed warranties that are good without any question at any manufacturer dealer. They're not offering manufacturer maintenance programs. And they're offering, uh, to me, what is the equivalent of a an OEM knockoff part that happens to be a protection package. And so it seems like a lot of people, to your point, 
because, you know, money's tighter. Let's face it, that $1.2 trillion of record savings is all but gone. Um, and credit, and it's been replaced by $1 trillion in unprecedented $1 trillion in credit card debt, um, record delinquency rates for mortgage and autos. And, um, and we're seeing protect potentially at the same time as we're going to see record cash deals this year, we're going to likely see record repossessions this year. It's confounding. So I think that, you know, for certain, there are people that have means, those super prime people that have the cash, have the resources, the prime too, to a, to a lesser degree. They are some of them paying cash. I'm with you. I don't get it. I'm a Getty fan. If it appreciates, buy it. If it depreciates, lease it. But they're buying them. So it's interesting. And how is this going to affect things? Well, when you consider in the nation what percentage of people have fifty to $60,000 in discretionary cash laying around when they say that the average household has $985 in savings for an emergency, I don't know. That doesn't yeah. sound like that would bode well for volume. Yeah, our our, uh, our friend uh, Glenn Mercer uh, did a study. The best. <laughs> had a column uh, at early this year and uh, he was making the uh, in his analysis, making a supposition that there's, there's, a, there's a dichotomy now dem- demographically uh, due to economics, rich people buy new cars. Um, everybody else buys used cars. That's right. And that, uh, so, but when you have, you know, the retailer is going to get squeezed in the middle because for the next three years, there's a shortage of used cars. And if manufacturers don't get price competitive, like Chevy has, a couple of other manufacturers have at the at the lower end. By the way, that Chevy Trax is easily the hottest product that Chevrolet offers to their dealers today, and that's um, and they make money on it, which is a great thing. Yep. The and, uh, and consumers seem to really like them. However, the number of folks that can do exactly what you described have that uh, choice to plan their their expenditure either write a check or borrow money at a higher rate or lease at a higher rate than they did previously, that group is much smaller than the overall market that we were serving before. So we're not forecasting a rapid return to the 17 million plus new vehicle market. We think it's going to be a much, it's going to continue to increase a little flattish in 24, Mm -hmm. start to pick up 25 and 26. We're not likely to see that until interest rates come back it to where a reasonable level, maybe historical as we remember it, David, you know, that when good credit is getting up six and a half, six point nine rate on a on a new car, five point nine, four point nine. You know, interestingly, you pointed out something about the payment escalation. Literally in, in twenty in twenty twenty, at the beginning of twenty twenty, we did an internal study about what's What's the real payment elasticity in a new car show? Where do people start to trigger to make a decision either to decontent or down, uh, go, go, go to a less expensive model? It was $550, David, at that base. And, it, and, and the elasticity was 10. They would go to 600, a little over once they were all said and done out of the FI office. And now it's 900 bucks. <laughs> And I'm sorry. I mean, that's just, 
best serious best a serious number on a monthly but, basis. I mean, for think folks. about that. That's bananas. I mean, I I you know my first house I bought in nineteen eighty three, I believe. <clears throat> I paid a um a staggering seventy two thousand dollars for this three bedroom two bath house, uh, and I. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to get a VA loan for 12.9%. That's right. Uh, brothers and sisters, 12.9%. So any of you that are twitching, anybody under the age of 38, who's never gone through inflation, higher gas prices, high interest rates. I, I want to take you to the way back machine and, and explain that I just share with you that back then it was very common to see a home loan at 15 or 17%. And car loans above that, by the way, couldn't even finance longer than three years, if you could believe it, until GMAC changed that in 1983, uh, when they also came out, uh, ironically, with 12.9% in 48-month financing. So, you know, back then, we had the benefit, though, of these much lower prices on homes, much lower prices on cars. And when you connected those together with that 12 or 15 18%, you know, we, we can make it work today to your point, $900, uh, you know, for an average, I mean, you're not talking about a Mercedes S class. You know, if you think about this, think about this, a Mercedes S class that just a handful of years ago would have leased for 13, 1400 bucks is now edging court towards $3,000 a month, $3,000 a month. You know, you talk about a Cadillac Escalade that would have been eight hundred bucks. Those things are now seventeen, eighteen hundred bucks a month. So it is a it is a different world. But you brought up something elasticity. It's, it, we talk all the time about how resilient, um, brilliant, and resilient dealers are. You got to give some credit to consumers too, don't you? Because we take gas prices from two fifty to six dollars. Did they reduce? the time in the car no let's go and and it was funny i was saying when that happened watch <clears throat> if gas gas prices don't reduce back to 250 within 60 to 80 days 60 to 90 days watch how long they stay at 354 bucks because once we show people that we're willing to pay more they're not going to go back so jt how about this so let's jump over I mean, I, you talked about when are things going to loosen up a, a little bit, get us back to legitimately 15 and a half, 16, 17 million cars. I was saying that the pandemic interrupted a perfectly good recession. We were on the leading edge of a recession. You remember back then? And then funny thing happens when you drop $3.2 trillion in funny money into the economy. You, you really jacked up there. <laughs> you just hijacked that recession. Now, we're in a really weird spot. We're in purgatory, seems like, for the last year and a half. Are we in a recession, classically defined? No, we're not. Because, you know, we got low unemployment and we still got people buying goods. And so we're not in a recession. We're kind of in a recession, but we're really not. And would you think that it is plausible that buyer before the end of 2024, that we will get out of this purgatory and we will start to see some relief or reduction on the current interest rates so that it will start to create some more consumer confidence that will be the impetus to get us back to 17 million. 
great question, David. And I think that that's, that's uh, you know, it's hard for me not to put my retail hat on because I'm an eternal optimist, just like most of our car dealer friends are. But Wall Street definitely believes it's going down. There's no question. You know, they, they, this, this increase from 35,000 past 37,000 uh, in the Dow, it's, 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 it's amazing how uh, a little bit of good news has gone a long ways. And it's all in and around. We generally believe at Truist, our, our folks, that there will be three reductions in 2024. There are some uh, folks that uh, are, are speculating on five reductions. If there's five, they'll be smaller. If there are three, they could be substantial, like uh, 50 basis point reductions. And um, so that drops a point and a half over, over a 12-month period. That, that speaks well to consumer lending. And uh, you'll see credit card rates come down. You'll see mortgages come down significantly, uh, hopefully to stimulate uh, uh, new home uh, purchases. Uh, by the way, that it's that, that matchup of buy a home, buy a new car is still really true. It's interesting that's still in place. What about JT? Talk about, you know, like I said, one of the, one of the, one of the many things I love about you is, you know, you, you're not somebody that's sitting out on the periphery in this financial side. You are knee deep, incredibly passionate about this industry and knee deep um, and very well versed, very knowledgeable about the consumer side as, as well as the commercial side. Can, can we jump uh, to a different gear and talk a little bit about what you're seeing on the commercial side and what that's likely to create um, in, in 2024? Well, one of the things that happened for it was specifically to auto retail, David, in, in the dealer world, the um, the run up during COVID uh, cleaned up a lot of balance sheets. It now, did. We haven't seen a contraction uh, in what was pretty healthy. The balance sheets are strong. Dealers are um, continuing to do things that they need to do. Uh, we have funded a, a record number of uh, of, of, uh, facility actions and uh, relocations. Um, the number of, uh, either internal or external acquisition activity, transition activity internally between shareholders and, uh, acquisitions has gone up appreciably. Uh, there will, we think that will continue there because even though it's, if there are headwinds with the interest rate situation and, uh, and uh, uh, the escalation of, of retail prices, the reality is, is that dealers have paid very close attention to most of their variable costs. We still see some, this is a hard thing to say, but it's true. There's too many people in the dealership still. Yeah. For the level of production that we have. Yeah. And we know what happens, David. You know, we, 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 we staff our stores. We get excited about the people that are there. There's a contraction. Well, we suck it up from an ownership standpoint, from a shareholder standpoint, in order to protect those families that are working for us. We see that it may be, it's definitely leading edge. It's likely to be, but the health of those businesses is predicated on making sure that those expense structure is right size. And that's one of the beautiful aspects of the auto retail and how it's structured uh, as a business model. So dealers are going to be pushed to exercise uh, in a uh, 
circumspect fashion, uh, reduction in their potential expenses, per se- not necessarily as a percentage, but in overall, because the gross number is going to go down. Mm-hmm. And hopefully they're recognizing that if they do that, and we believe that we believe the majority will. COVID was a great lesson because the reaction, man, right away, people had their headcount reductions. They got rid of the superfluous vendors. They reduced their inventories. Uh, they paid attention to the the things they could control right out of the box, and their expenses dropped significantly. And then when the market came back quickly, they were in a position to make outside returns and outside margin. They don't want to give that up, or should they? But you have to be smart. You have to be disciplined. And you have to be willing to use the tools that are available today to make your business more efficient. You know, oh, we will see dealers doing that. I, I I love that. You had mentioned being uh like dealers eternally optimistic, right? An eternal optimist. I I think that it's important to state that you would much rather be an internal optimist than an irrational optimist. Because the irrational optimist, which is alive and well in dealerships, um, fuels uh at times decisions that are not great business decisions. They are detrimental to profitability. And just to give you an example, you know, when we got hit by the big recession in 2008, um, the average number, according to NADA, if you looked at data back then for uh, their, every year you remember they used to do the, the, uh, the annual report, which showed that basically what the average NADA dealer looked like. Well, at that time it was, it was dealerships were staffed with an average of 56 people. Now, interestingly, 10 years later, 2018, now this was uh, after the advent of unprecedented technology solutions that were supposed to make us more effective and more efficient. Somehow our staffing went from an average of 56 to 70, right? 56 to 70. And then what happens? You know, and you brought something else up about the balance sheets being cleaned up uh, at the onset of the pandemic, the pandemic did some amazing things, right? Uh, for from a dealer perspective, first of all, to your point, it like instantly did something that no dealer, no OEM had ever been able to do. It instantly right-sized inventories. You know, oh, I mean, you're in your used car inventory wrong? Nope, not anymore. Now you're in it right. Wholesale loss? Nope, gone. Excessive floor plan? Gone. New car margins gone. Brand devaluation. You know, we spent 20 years selling payments instead of selling the car and managed to completely obliterate brand value, you know, across the industry. It fixed it. And now when you look at it, you know, PPP came in, ERC came in, vendors, a member gave two or three months of very favorable rates to help the dealers out. And then dealers said, well, I don't even need half these dealers anyways. I'm going to get rid of those. I'm going to reduce some workforce. And, and to your point, you said brilliantly, it created these, these outsized, you know, disproportionate increases in profits. Remarkable. And it's awesome. But, you know, at the same time, OEMs were stating during the pandemic, we're never going to go back to overproducing vehicles again. Boy, have we learned our lesson. Huh. Porsche, 81-day supply. Audi, 98-day supply. Stellantis, Dodge, 180-day supply. Hey, what happened to that discipline? And inside the store, guess what? 
expenses are leaking and it's not just floor plan. You brought up something really big with staffing. You know what I'm seeing consistently in data across the country, JT? They're doing a fabulous job. When you look at the variable aspect, I mean, you get these financial statements. When you look at the variable expense, sales comp F&I, they're managing it very well. It's at or below last year. But you know it's exploded? Personnel expense, clerical expense, other salaries and wages, management supervision. Those are all up a ton if you look across most stores. So it's really interesting. It's time to take a hard look and it's time to make hard decisions because it's not 2022 anymore unless you happen to be a Lexus, Kia, Toyota, you know, maybe a Subaru or BMW store to varying degrees. Lexus stores are in the 20, I keep saying they're in the 24th month of the year, 2022. Uh, December 23 is like the 24th month because their net profit essentially hasn't shifted. But, you know, I looked at the Cox data, JT, that comes out every month brilliantly, Jonathan Smoke and his team, where they show, uh, you know, our day supply by brand. And if you quartile that horizontally, it's interesting. The six brands, Subaru, BMW, Kia, Honda, Toyota, and Lexus, if you look at year-over-year profit and you correlate it, it's flat, up a little, down a little, as you were saying before we jumped on our call. If you look at quartile two, it's going down. Quartile three, that angle's even deeper. Quartile four, it's starting to look like these, like a, uh, a giant slalom run at the Olympics. So it's interesting when you look at this commercial side. What do you think? How do you think that that is going to play out in 2024? If you were at if you were sitting in front of me as a dealer right now, what would you say that I need to be paying attention to other than you just mentioned, time to start looking at expenses. Is there anything else that you would recommend? Well, I here's, here's another issue, and it ties a little bit into M&A and the trend towards exit mm. as opposed to grow. Um, in today's world, there there are legitimately technology technology tools out there that can help us manage data and manage our business in a more efficient basis. No question, those tools are expensive, and for most dealers, it's a and it's a it's a it's a shift in philosophy though that they have to embrace because they don't have the people employed today that can manage those tools and can maximize those tools and still get the results that they're used to getting. So what do we have in the bridge period here? Let's go back to your point about increasing personnel. They're hiring those people to run those tools and they're not getting rid of the old model. Mm -hmm. So they're stuck in limbo deciding, am I, am I going to be this dealer, fully digitized, data driving my business, using these fantastic algorithmically-derived tools that can make me more efficient? Or am I going to go continue to be stuck back here doing what I've done for the last 35 years in this basic format? Not that you can't do a lot of these same things, but can you make them more efficient? Sure, but you have to, you got to burn the ships. Mm -hmm. 
and take that step. And I, I know you've spoken to this a number of different times. Until a dealership, our dealer group decides to make that step, and it's not overnight, nor is it seamless, but you have to make that decision that you're going to do that. In the meantime, if you're trying to do both, it's going to get really expensive. I agree. I, 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 it's a couple things that pop to mind, you know, as you're saying that one is, is just that simple statement, all in or all out. You know, if you're talking about all to M&A, to me, this is the time you better decide whether you're all in as a dealer or all out. Yeah, um, it's, it, it's rare you get the situation where those decisions are so black and white. But they are today. Are today. Right? They, they seem what? crystal clear with technology. Are you all in? Are you all out? Used cars, all in or all out? EVs, all in or all out? You cannot, there is no scenario where I've got one leg here and one leg here, and that's working out. At best, I'm going to get suboptimal performance, right? So to your point, if I decide that I'm still married to my old way of doing things, the only thing I could tell dealers with complete certainty, I don't know how everything's going to go. I can tell you this with certainty, is that you will continue to get degradation or declines in your results, specifically net profit, because you're deploying a plan that is no longer valid and no longer viable. Um, do you agree with that? I do agree. And I think, you know, you've, you've gave a couple of examples are, you know, the all in or not. And um, let's talk about EV just briefly. You know, we, I'll give you an example of all in. And in a brand that you know really well, um, German luxury brand, NAM, uh, super large metro area, uh, this, the, the store is in an affluent part of town. This brand, this, this dealer decided early on as they got availability that they converted their um, loaner car fleet, which in this case is about 75 units for this store, 100% EV, 100% BED. Last month, they were number two in their region for retail, and they were typically like number 12. 28% of their retail sales, new, new retail, were BEV. That is an all-in position, right? And the vast majority of that 28% were driving an ICE vehicle that they had purchased from that dealership before and service at that dealership. So they made a concerted effort to convert their most loyal customers with products that they're, you know, a little trepidation about the quality, a little trepidation about the use model. But it's a metro store, so they're not driving, you know, 30, 40, 60, 80 miles a day like a lot of the United States does. So the use model is better. Uh, it's a luxury car, luxury vehicle. So, the, you know, it's, it's, there's typically another vehicle in the driveway if necessary, right? And it probably an ICE. But they made the jump. Um, on the other side great client of ours, one of the most successful dealers for this Korean brand in the country, two stores, they are, they have made, just flat out made the decision. Uh, they, even though they're in a metro an urban area, they are not pursuing an EV strategy beyond what the manufacturer is going to, I'm not going to say force, but require of them. Totally different. And sure enough, you know, those vehicles are 120 days old on their, on their lot. And they are considering turning down the next two that they have available for their allocation. And um, 
And with the knowledge that that two is going to turn into 24 in the first quarter that are going to be made available to them. I think that those types of decisions right now are really, really tough. And it is driving dealers, particularly of a certain season of life, to make the decision that they are not going to embrace those, that level of change. When you have so many of them coming at you at a confluence, it's better off to have a monetization of that business, sell it to someone that they prefer to sell it to at even today, really, really strong values for most brands. Um, you know, on the commercial side of the world, we're funding a lot of acquisitions, a lot of acquisitions to the tune of over 110 dealerships that we funded alone at Truist last year on acquisitions. Great data so set for us, and we've seen uh, brand values move somewhat for some brands, go up or down. But for the most part, David, the brand value itself, the multiple, is pretty stable. Yeah, it is. Hasn't it moved move. much at all in the last yes, year. What, I mean, the, the net profit has moved. Uh, yes. The, the, the multiple has not. But, you know, obviously when you get a, uh, you, you know, the net profit, if it goes down 20%, you apply it against that same multiple, your value is going to go down 20%. Pretty straightforward math. Um, you're you're 100% right. It's going to be interesting to see within three to five years with manufacturers that are taking more of an all-in approach, take Genesis or Volvo, what's going to happen to their multiples? Are they more likely to go up or more likely to go down? Um, I think right now with the current state of EVs in the industry where it appears that we have to some degree achieved saturation uh, years before we thought we were going to, I mean, with 55 models, we're already saturated. Uh, probably 85 to 90% of those models are, um, aren't moving on lots um, and they're not making money. But at the same time, you know, you've got uh, Highline stores like BMW where you're getting up close to 20% of their inventory is EVs or Mercedes over 30% EVs, but less than 10% sales. So it's it's very interesting. All of a sudden, you know, we're people were talking about, hey, we're not ready from an infrastructure perspective, and we're not. But there's something else I think that's uh, probably more important right now, and that is here we go again with oversupply and overproduction. If we overproduce and oversupply our dealers with the wrong models, what's going to happen is the is the inevitable. What's going to happen is the predictable. In my from my perspective. You know, if I have a 30-day supply, if I have 30% of my inventory tied up in EVs as a Ben store and 8% of my sales, hmm, let me see. Every month, I'm going to have a 22% excess, and that's going to convert over to excess floor plan expense. It's going to convert to, ultimately, anxiety and and pressure on my new car managers to get rid of those cars, which is going to decrease in the margin I mean, we are we are potentially at risk at devaluing these cars in a premature fashion, not because that would have happened organically in the market, but because, you know, if it's like De Beers. They always talk about the fact that De Beers controls, you know, the flow of diamonds. And if De Beers opened up all the diamonds they have, they'd be, all be a dollar, right? Rolex, 
the only thing you can't find in a Rolex store is, is a Rolex. The only thing you can't find in a Ferrari showroom is a new Ferrari, right? And it's funny, Hermes, no Hermes purses. And, you know, it's like these, these, are, these are smart brands. You were talking about people, you know, that were paying cash for cars earlier. You know, there seems to be a, a undersupply of dumb people with a lot of money. Those don't seem to be mutually exclusive. Smart people are the ones that have an ex, you know, a, a better cash situation, discretionary cash, and they tend to be very smart with their money. That's why they have money. So what's your, t I mean, I'm doing this event January 17th with some really brilliant people, including Glenn Mercer, um, and to, to in an effort to help dealers uh intelligently position themselves for what's coming in 2024 because they don't control what models are being made. They don't control the production level. They don't control infrastructure, but like it or not, this toothpaste is out of the tube. It's not going back in and you better figure out whether you're going to, to your point, JT lean in or not. If you're not leaning in, you're probably going to get smacked in my opinion. David, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think, though, that most of the manufacturers are listening uh, because they're making more on a per unit basis on internal combustion engine equipped vehicles than they <laughs> ever have in history. Yeah. The profit margin is enormous compared to what it has been historically. And, but God bless them. That's healthy. Okay. You're building what consumers want, make some money. Dealers are making money on those. And then, they, you know, that huge sucking sound you hear in Dearborn and Warren <laughs> and, and in uh, Auburn Hills is that the money that they are pushing into R&D to develop what is mandated to be the vehicle of the future. And if there's no pushback on this regulatory environment that manufacturers are being forced in, in we think the EU is going to be the first one to crack. Uh, they're going to start, they're going to back off their mandates and, uh, and lengthen that term out there um, because they are a saturation as well, mm -hmm. just at a higher level than what we are. Um, I think that the message is loud and clear to the CEOs that are running the um, uh, big three, including Tavares at Stellantis, maybe the best CEO in the, in the world for auto, they are paying attention. We are not going to continue to throw money off the back of this train without starting to see some, at least a vision of a return on these products. And for crying out loud, David, they are building cool cars with these propulsion units. I mean, they are, they are interesting vehicles and they do great things. They just don't do it in a way that Americans want to. Yeah, well, isn't that the whole thing? Can't you start out with this? Nobody ever asked for an EV. We're not building a product. Like, you know, you remember at the turn of the 2000s and we started to see, you know, the, the Challenger and the big Hemis and the 700 horsepower cars at a time when fuel prices were going up. But there, were, there was an audience. People wanted that. Uh, you know, AMG with Mercedes-Benz, right? And so forth. Uh, M-Series, started seeing more M-Series with BMW. There was demand. People asked for it and they made it. And guess what? It worked out pretty well. Nobody has ever asked for an EV. Now, don't get me wrong. Hey, 
you know, everybody that's out there that's green and enviro friendly, I get it. I understand. I'm, I'm not an anti EV person, but let's be honest. The, the audience at large, the consumers at large did not ask for this. To your point, it's been regulated. And for example, the Biden administration wants 50% EVs by 2030. Come on, man. It's not going to happen. You can't do that from a production standpoint. You it's not financially viable. It's not environmentally viable with, with strip mining. You know, it's not viable on any level. Even the Department of Energy of the same administration is saying, mm, I don't even see 30% by 2050. So there's a disconnect there. And most importantly, as is always the case with business, you know, the beautiful thing is, you know, corporations or businesses or even us as dealers, we, we can conjecture and hypothecate all we want. At the end of the day, the final say is by the consumer. Don't you think, JT? Absolutely. What, what do people want? Now, the great thing about being an American is that, you know, when we were born, David, you know, it, we had this innate right granted us by our culture. And I call it MOBA culture. They call food agriculture. I call it carpet <laughs> MOBA culture because it gets us going, right? And it always has. You and I, and when, just, when we turned 16, we were able to get an operator's license for a motor vehicle that we could drive anywhere in the country. We could potentially purchase uh, a vehicle of our own and have a side job to be able to gas it, maintain it, and insure it. Yep. Where else do you have that in the world? Nowhere. So it's part of our culture. Wake up in the morning, and I can go for, to, from point A to point B any way I choose. And there are dozens of ways to make that, make that happen. The preference is I want to do it my way with my car, my motor vehicle, my truck, my SUV, whatever it is to get me there. That's not changing. Nope. What is changing is this, is if we don't listen to that consumer that already wants those modes of transportation, they want them. And we force something down that is not being asked for, that is speculative at best then we're probably not going to have the success rate that we might anticipate. Dealers, by the way, don't care what powers the car, as long as that's what the consumer wants to drive and they can make Great money point. on it. They hear them after Great the after. So it's not the dealer world. Well, Manufacturers, they want to build what people want to buy. Do they? Well, you would think. I think so. You would think, but, but they also... <clears throat> I think they're in a difficult position, to be honest with you. Tell me what you think about this uh, thesis. I think I, we talk all the time about dealers being in the middle, and they are, right? You've got disruptors out here. You've got OEM out here. You've got the government over here. And the dealers are constantly having to figure out how to navigate, manage, you know, uh, respond to these different scenarios. I think the OEMs right now today are finding themselves in a very interesting place. Um, they are now a little bit of on the inside uh, as well, from my perspective in this in in this regard. Number one, you've got the government that is implementing or inflicting, depending on your perspective. Um, I think it's inflicting the these regulations that are unrealistic um, and not viable. But on the other hand, you have this very what seems to be a, a unfair. 
um, landscape because, you know, I, if I'm Rivian or Polestar, or Lucid, Tesla, I don't have to live by the same rules, you know, and I'm getting favorable loans. I'm getting incentives all over the place. Um, and I get to do things that the traditional OEMs don't do. So think about this. If I'm a traditional OEM and now that the lid is off of EVs, Tesla proved brilliantly, Elon proved that if you build to your point, JT, a beautiful, compelling, well-designed, fast car, that's an EV consumers will buy it and they're buying them. And if you look at them in BYD, you're talking about millions of cars. These are not tens of thousands or hundred thousand. These are millions of cars. So we have to say viability, we've gotten to that point. If I'm an OEM, a traditional OEM, if I don't jump in, all of a sudden this sounds or feels a little bit like back in the 70s and 80s again. If you look back in the 60s, the big three had 70% market share for God's sakes. And they weren't worried about uh, you know, the early version of Nissan or Honda or Toyota. You remember the original Honda? It was the size of a grocery cart, for God's sakes. You remember the you remember the B two hundred, you know Nissan or the pre predecessor to Nissan. Um, it, I mean, nobody was worried about that. You know, guess what? The big three aren't the big three anymore. Now Toyota is in the big three, right? And Nissan, Hyundai, Honda, Kia—that's been an onslaught, and they're getting better and they're getting stronger. So here you go again. The, you have Tesla followed by Rivian, followed by Lucid, followed by Polestar, followed by VinFast. And guess who's coming around the corner? BYD, who's now the largest EV product producer in the world. Don't you think the OEMs are feeling a little heat on the back of their neck? And so if I don't get jump into this, I run the risk of losing market share. But if I do jump into this, I, lose, I run the risk of losing market share because I'm not building what consumers want. And I think that there's a cadence to this level of change. Um, you know, changing drivetrain is, you know, the, the biggest change in the industry in the last 120 years. It is. You know, we're, we're not going to talk about the advent of compact cars or fuel economy becoming important as a budgetary issue for consumers. No, this is going from um, what powers the car readily available. You know, I can get gasoline. Just going to Costco yesterday uh, evening, I, I passed 15 gas stations in five and a half miles. <laughs> um, I did not pass 15 superchargers that would that my Tesla could <laughs> align to. That's right. So. And um, well, I can do that in and my none home. of the gas stations. Do I have to call my wife and say, "Honey, I'm just gassing up. I'll be home in eight hours." <laughs> that's right. There, <laughs> there's six chargers. Two of uh, two of them don't work. Four of them are busy, and it's going to take me on a trickle charge eight hours to get this son of a gun charged up. And um, I, I think that you know that anxiety and that that. Uh, uh, lack of convenience that is with the product today is going to hamper it for quite a while until there's you know just some substantial breakthrough in technology and everybody's anticipating that that battery technology lighter higher capacity more powerful battery tech is going to come 
But we can't say when Mm -hmm. and we can't say at what price. It's got to be affordable, right, David? Yes, absolutely. Right now, EVs are not affordable. So there's not going to be any mass market uh, uh, application beyond what Tesla's done with their remarkable 1.6 million units this year, maybe 1.7 when they're all said and done uh, globally. Which, Which, by the way, the three and the Y, the three and the Y alone are outselling every one of the 50 plus competitors combined. Isn't that crazy? So, so while people are saying, Hey, you know, guess what? Tesla's losing market share. Yeah. Tesla is saying, yeah, I'm good with that because the pie keeps growing. So if you give me 80% of this, you know, or 60% of this or 30% of this, I'll take the 30. Guess what? If you look over year over year, while the market share is shrinking, their year over year sales keep growing at 30 plus percent. Not, it's not a bad deal, right? So I got one other question for you, JT, before we jump into the speed round. Um, and that is this, um, I got two more actually. Tell me about your thoughts on auto digital media and the transformation and where that's going. You know, with with our with our lives in the palm of our hands, in our cell phone, our mobile phone, uh, I think that that um, aspect of shopping, and then now not just shopping but actually transacting, is going to have to uh, those sources of information are going to have to elevate their game. There are a couple. There are a number of the uh, established. Uh, uh, auto digital media companies that have made some major inroads into taking uh, retail to the consumer through their platform, still engaging the dealer, dealer sourcing sourcing the the the, the inventory, and those are solid uh, initiatives, but still clunky and not there yet. Not there that, yet. It, yeah, there's going to have to be a smoothing of that. Um, there are a couple of things that have happened recently. Uh, that I think are are important to notice. Odessa Open Lane on the wholesale side, Open Lane is 100% um, digital for dealers now, and with their with their three platforms have fallen underneath that brand, and it is easy to use. The physical auction is going to be diminished. There'll still be physical act- activity at, at hubs in order to transport and recondition vehicles. That's not going to stop. But the ability to transact for a vehicle anywhere in the country on an open lane sale is a reality. Now in Canada, it's a reality. You know, what about, uh, what about the Carvana effect, though, on Odessa? Odessa, you know, Carvana made a, a shrewd, albeit incredibly expensive crazy. Uh, move. Yeah, Seemingly they had to crazy. do it. They couldn't get cars from point A to point Z without, without costing money. They, so they, were, having, they were in a box. Yeah, so it was a smart thing to do. But boy, was it expensive. It's got yeah, and, and and you're hoping they're hoping that scale will can continue to drive down those costs. OpenLay provides a lot of resources contractually for that arrangement. You can read their um, uh, reports on that. Uh, that's going to end soon, uh, in the I think in the next sixteen months, and Carvana is going to have to run those businesses. Yeah, and we'll see if they're able to do that. By the way, Carvana just well, never. I'll save it for the. Um for the speed round, but uh, last but last question before the speed round, uh, what's your view on M&A going into 2024? 
it's will still going to continue gonna continue to be, to be robust. It's it's robust. Yeah, you know, pricing just due to the underlying multiplier is going to be a little bit softer than what it's been. It's going to come down some, not substantially though, David. Uh, there's still a scarcity of quality operations, and a um, a lot of people say they're buyers until they you know jump into the market. It's remarkable how many times we'll go in and and discuss strategy with a with a good dealer, and they'll recognize what the we will value their business for them, and they'll say, "Wow, that's what mine's worth," <laughs> and that's what you have to pay for your like site business if you want another one. Yeah, and they start to you know what that happens. You know the conversation sometimes goes. Well, maybe it's not getting it out. It's like that would be like the the it'd be analogous to you know uh, living in a house for the last twenty years and and somebody say oh and you say you know I think I'm going to buy another house. Okay, great. Uh, you want something exactly like yours? Yeah, here's how much it costs. Oh my God, I can't afford to live here. <laughs> I can't afford to live in the house I'm already in. <laughs> And that's that's kind of the that's been the bellwether for a lot of growth-minded dealers who go from growth to hold and probably exit sooner than they anticipated. Uh, M&A is going to remain robust from a tra- number of transactions, and a uh, we'll continue to see that consolidation of owner groups, not rooftops, but consolidation of owner groups mm-hmm. dropping off that high of about eighty-eight hundred ten years ago. Now in the low seven thousands, it's probably going to drop below seven thousand by the end of twenty twenty four of Great. people then of entities that own car dealerships. You know, you you got to love it. I mean, here you are with high interest rates, with you know some continued inflation, with high gas prices and everything else, and you still have a, you know uh, roughly one out of four existing dealers wanting to buy a store and two percent wanting to sell. If you talk about supply and demand, holy cow, the, the car business is alive and well. So, all right, let's finish up with the speed round. Um, Carvana, uh, your thoughts on Carvana, long-term successful, long-term viability or no? Uh, I'm neutral. neutral. I think there will be, I think there'll be a split in the business. They'll have a wholesale Carvana and a retail Carvana. Yeah, I, I will, you know, I've come down on them a few times just because facts are facts. Um, but I have to hand it to um, Ernie Garcia and company because they have, uh, in recent times, most notably this year, uh, weathered the storm very well. The stock price is up massively. Now, of course, you know, it's it's like your kid bringing saying, hey, my kid brought up their grades massively. Yes, they got an F last quarter. So, uh, when you're at a $4 stock price, there's nowhere to go but up. But they've been up tremendously this year, up and down. But overall, it's going to be a pretty good year, reported some profitability. So I think they're in a better position. I just am concerned about, you know, the the, the cash situation, about the debt uh, situation, and, and about the fact that they, I, I don't know, there just seems to be some uh, lack of predictability and uh, some exposure, you know, depending on the 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 whims of the market, right? You just you don't ultimately control your circumstances when it comes to used cars. How about this, um, Jim Farley, Mary Barra, of the two, uh, which one is least likely to still be in those roles at the end of twenty twenty four? Third thing. EVs in their current state without a bunch of big incentives, 
Because right now, I mean, here's another thing about EVs. What would EVs actual organic growth have been in the last five years without the $7,500 incentives, without manufacturer incentives, without Elon dropping prices 15 grand? This year, will EVs be more likely to have a negative effect on a dealer's profitability or a positive effect? And, uh, and then and talk to any CFO at one of the public auto retailers and they will quietly share with you their biggest, their biggest issue is frozen EV inventory. Yeah, I, I, I think EVs, are, in my mind, um, and I hear it all the time from dealers, is the single biggest challenge transformationally. Um, we're in a transition, I should say, in 2024. All right, first car you ever owned? Uh, 1976 Pontiac Trans Am that I bought new with my own money. And God, do you wish you still own that car? Oh, probably it was a cool <laughs> car. <laughs> you'd be you'd be in Arizona at a at an auction getting six figures for that thing all day <laughs> long. Barry Jackson, right? Um, honor for me. All right. Uh, what do you think's the single? If you could own any car, just or just take any car for a drive for today down in Florida there, wherever you wanted to take it, what would be that car you'd like to take in a, uh, remember the old show Top Gear, right? So oh, yeah. you have a chance to hang out with the Stig and, t- and drive anything, what would it be? You know, I, I, you and I share the, the, the habit of trading cars often and then buying a few fun ones, but I have to tell you, every time I see a Lamborghini Urus, it turns my head. I just, it's just one of those things. I think I could see myself driving that every day. They did a, a they car. did a spectacular job on that. Um, of it's going to be interesting to see Ferraris, uh, pure saying when it when it uh, finally lands, because that's a that's a very uh, that's a stellar looking vehicle as well. All right, and and last but not least, you touched on this a bit. Twenty twenty four, you know, we're likely to see what you said pretty much a flat market, maybe up 2% in new cars. But overall, from, uh, from your perspective, from a profitability perspective for dealers, I'm talking about the average dealer. I'm not talking about the best of the best. Certainly not talking about the ones that are in the worst shape. But from an industry perspective, where are we in 2024? Are we likely, more likely to be flat, down 10%, down 20%? What's your take? We are doing, we are, we, you know, we do look forwards as, as part of our uh, returns analysis when we're helping somebody buy a, a, a dealership or price their own dealership mm-hmm. because you're going to test, you know, you got to find out, do, is there a return at this price I'm asking for my, my, my business? And we are speculating that 2025 is going to be somewhere around uh, 70% of uh, on new vehicle, 70% of the margins today will be the margin that we'll be able to apply that. Uh, service will offset that somewhat. The modest increase is we've tempered our net profit projection. Net profit projection is probably going to be down about 20, 22% because the volume is not going to go up as, as much as we anticipated. And it's all about affordability, David. I mean, when you, I, th- when I you- think I think that don't you think JT that's the ultimate wild card here for Q3 and Q4. If those interest rates do come down uh, three to five times, if the OEMs get far more aggressive with more compelling consumer offerings and better programs for dealers, you know, um, 
I could see 2024 ending on, on a, on a definitely on an up note, but I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I mean, here's the challenge. You know, the funny thing is, and we'll leave it here. When we dropped 22% in volume, uh, new car volume, um, in during the year of the pandemic, uh, we were able to mitigate that because we went from selling cars for below invoice or invoice for MSRP or above. No problem. When we dropped volume again the following year, no problem. We were above MSRP. Used cars were selling for what? Point Investment grade numbers. Yeah. 50% above the norm, right? So no yeah. problem. But it doesn't work the other way around. So when inventory comes back and sales go up, well, you got two issues. Number one, our inventory year over year is going to end up being up way over 60% year over year. Volume's only up 8 to 10%. That delta between the two is deadly on margins and on, on expenses as well. So what we lose and what we've lost in variable growth and what we will lose based on your projection, and I agree with you, the problem is our fixed op departments cannot mitigate it. And our single biggest contributor to net profit is a driver, is F&I, right? Where you can keep 80, 85% of every F&I gross dollar. F&I is taking a hit because of the increase in cash. So if I'm not going to be able to make it up in F&I, there's no world where I'm going to replace variable dollars with fixed dollars. Although I buy into McKinsey's uh, belief that fixed is absolutely the number one growth channel between now and 2030, the only yeah. thing you could you could draw a conclusion is that we are going to take a 20% hit or possibly more this year. I think you're 100% on point. So I'm um, going to give you one more on the consumer for consideration, and, and you'll be one that could probably dig a little more deeply in this than what we have so far. The cost to insure, insure a motor vehicle. Oh, my God. By the way, the cost to insure a Cybertruck, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there are some insurance companies that will not insure the Cybertruck. They will not insure that absolutely insane vehicle. Um, and you could choose whether I mean insane in a good or bad way. Um, but, but yeah, this is great information because I was looking not too long ago and the average insurance in 2019 for average household, 1400 a year was average. It's 2200 bucks a year now. So it's think, do the math there. It's about $75 a month. So somebody that was paying $350 a month, even if the new car price didn't go up, interest rates didn't go up, your payment's going up $75. Bucks. Fuel going from $2.50 to $3.80, and it's higher in some markets like where I am. It's well over 4 There's another $75. Bucks. Just insurance and gas has jacked up payments $150. Bucks. It is a brave new world. But again... You, got, you, you know what? A lot of things that, that we can love about uh, this country and about dealers and about Americans in general, we respond, we're resilient, and we figure it out. So people are still driving. Jump on the 405. Jump on the, on the uh, what is your road there, the 75 in Florida? The 95. The yeah. 95, rather, right? Um, yeah, going up to New York. It is still bumper to bumper, baby. Exactly. <laughs> people are still fueling up. Buying cars, thank God, and hitting the road. So on that note, my friend, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me. This has not only been fun and truly a gift for me, but this has been what you've shared, JT, I know is going to provide massive value. 
for everybody who listens. So I, I wish you and your family all the best for a happy holiday season, a tremendously wonderful 2024. And I look forward to seeing you, uh, if not before at NADA. Absolutely. And David, once again, please keep doing what you're doing. You Thank ask you. the hard questions, looking for the right answers. The industry needs that conduit of communication that you're providing and much appreciated. I really appreciate the kind words. Thank you so much for everybody who took the time to join. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Wishing you also all the best for a wonderful holiday season and a fantastic 24. Please take the time to share, subscribe, look up JT. And if you go to my website, www.davidspizak.com, you can find this episode in addition to Spotify and Apple. But on my website, there's also show notes as well as a way to get a hold of JT via LinkedIn or uh, um, some other channel. So thanks so much, JT. Look forward to seeing you soon. And for everybody out there, thanks for joining. Bye now. You've been listening to The David Spizak Show. If you haven't yet, please click the subscribe button and leave a rating wherever you're listening right now. I look forward to having you back in the room where it happens.